When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Slate's culture critic and a contributor to the magazine, and I'm here today with Katie Royfe, a professor at NYU, and Troy Patterson, Slate's TV critic, to talk about John Updike's Rabbit Run. Welcome, Troy and Katie. Hi. 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 But before we start talking about Rabbit Run, I want to take a few moments to talk about our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, and they offer more than 50,000 downloadable books, including all four books in Updike's Rabbit Quartet. Now, over the years, some listeners have been a little confused by the title of this podcast. They think that the Audio Book Club is a book club about audiobooks. It's not, of course, but here's a case where both meanings of the title can apply. As a special offer to book club listeners, Audible will give you a free audiobook download when you sign up for a one-book-a-month membership. And, dear listener, you can keep the book even if you cancel your subscription during the trial period. But if you keep the subscription, you can make it through the entire Rabbit series in just a few months. Hop, hop, hop. You'll find the free offer at www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate. Don't forget to include the word podcast in that address. Once again, that's www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate. And now, on with the book club. So we're talking about Rabbit Run, which on my very 1960s dime paperback edition says is, is heralded as the famous bestseller by John Updike. We're talking about Rabbit Run, of course, because Updike died not, not long ago, and um, we thought it would be fitting to revisit revisit the novel. As it happened, I had, I had read it for the first time only a year ago, so it was kind of interesting to read it close enough in time that I could remember a lot of what happened, but far enough that there were a lot of things that I, little details that I had forgotten, and I want to talk about some of that stuff. But also I have a confession, which is that I have not read the rest of the Rabbit series, so I'm going to be talking about this definitely just as this book, and I know you guys probably have read more of the Rabbit series, so we'll talk both about this as a book on its own and maybe a little bit about the whole series. But let me turn it over to you. What did you, what do you, how, you know, was it possible to return to this with a fresh eye? What did you think? What do you, are you Updike fans? Do you love the book? Do you hate this book? Troy? Uh, I I love this book for the most part. Uh, although at the same time, I want to be careful about overselling it. It's not, mm-hmm. I mean, you can think of two dozen other novels that have been published since 1960, which is when this book came out, uh, that are of the same caliber. That said, the sort of the first, there aren't really chapters in this book, but there's a there's this great stretch that sort of, the shove off the wall of the pool. The first, like, 35, 40 pages of this book are as good as, I think, anything that's ever been written in this country. Perhaps we should tell people who are new to the book that Rabbit Run is about um, one Rabbit Angstrom, Harry Rabbit Angstrom, who's a a (coughs) 26-year-old living in a little town outside of a little city in Pennsylvania. He's a former high school basketball star. He's trapped in a bad marriage to um, the former Janice Springer, who kind of sits around and drinks old fashions all day, and he's come to despise her. And is pregnant. Yes. Pregnant. They have one kid. There's, right. They have a... He, tur- he turns three two. in the course yeah. of the book. Yeah, he's two. And they've got another kid on the way. And so in that amazing sort of 35 or 40 pages that begins the book, he just gets fed up and gets in his car without uh, with this kind of vague idea of going to the Gulf of Mexico. And then he turns around, goes back to his town, 
shacks up with a prostitute for a couple months and uh things degenerate from there yes that's a good summary they degenerate well they degenerate and they and they recover there's there's recuperation and degeneration all at once um which we can talk about but there's definitely a lot of degeneration yes i think that's that's a good summary i'm trying to think if there's anything else that it's it's a very much a book also about someone as you said it's a book about someone searching for something that he runs off to the gulf of mexico which is figured as a kind of you know almost the way something in an advertisement might be figured you know kind of warmth and sun and this slightly glossy it's sort of womanly it seems sort of womanly there's a lot of like women's legs being described yeah it seems very fecund and fertile and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. definitely and and a lot of the book is this sort of is preoccupied. There's a pre- rabbit is searching for something. He keeps talking about the thing that's behind everything or it. He, he describes it just as it sometimes, which um, is related to a spiritual feeling he has that he can't quite pin down. But Katie, did you want to? Yeah, jump I in? mean, I just I I was going to say um, one thing before we talk about the book is to talk. It's it's extremely influenced by John O'Hara. Um, an Appointment in Samara, which is about the same region and the same kind of suburban Pennsylvania universe. And it's a kind mm. of, um, in a certain way, the plot, you know, obviously Appointment in Samara ends with suicide. It's a different plot, but it has a striking similarities to John O'Hara. And I think John O'Hara being one of the main influences on Updike. Mm-hmm. But I'm a huge Updike fan. And I've, I really strongly think Updike's been underrated um, mm-hmm. in the sort of you know, in comparison with Roth and um, in comparison with the sort of writers of his heyday. And I think one of the important things to say about this book, it's sort of about this panic in a marriage and this existential crisis and all of that. It's also very much about the 50s, um, as all the Rabbit books are cultural histories in certain ways. So, you know, he writes in Rabbit Redux about how the 60s plays itself out in this family and in he writes in Rabbit Run about the 80s, and he writes Rabbit Rich, Rabbit is Rich again. You know, it moves onward about about the decades he's discussing, and he he's very interested in the way in the way in which the cultural expectations play out in the most intimate fields of family life. Yeah, that that seems really true to me. I mean, especially this time when I was reading the book, you feel the historical moment it's describing so profoundly. So it does feel rooted in a time and a place. And there's actually one thing I almost hadn't noticed last time was how much detail is, um, how much attention is lavished on things like the songs on the radio when he's driving down to the South and a certain kind of quality of feeling they give him. And then also there's a, a sort of light motif of this preoccupation with vitamins. Like he, one of the things, what Rabbit now does in his kind of coming to earth from the you know the the mild glory of being you know the most famous high school basketball player in the county is he now is a salesman for the magic peel mm-hmm. I don't I think that's how we would say it which is a carrot peeler right mm-hmm. or a vegetable peeler and part of and it becomes clear that like part of the kind of pitch made to housewives is that this is a way of preserving vitamins or getting vitamins and there's that kind of like 1950s slightly scientific but ultimately not at all preoccupation with like vitamin and you realize that there's this there's this sense of a culture that's just starting to really be or not just starting to but is being really permeated with advertising there's a lot of like little advertising language and yeah. you know you get the kind of glimpse of what's going to happen with what James Wood called like hysterical realism later right. you know the intrusion of a lot of like name brand language right 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 no in terms of the uh, sort of the bits about advertising one of uh, the contradictions in Rabbit I like is that he, he's kind of enchanted with commercials, but yeah. says elsewhere that he hates manipulation. Yes. Um, Management. He uh, keeps saying, I hate, man- I hate being managed. Yeah. yeah. And there's also an interesting bit very early on where he um, is sort of taking lessons about life from uh, the Mickey Mouse Club and, and what, the ma- <laughs> what the Mouseketeers have to say about knowing thyself. Mm-hmm. Um and then as, uh, Which as a side note. is very ironic because it's from Shakespeare, right? To know thyself, mm-hmm. right? But, but, but it, from him, for him, it's coming from the Mickey Mouse Club. Yeah. Um, well, not Shakespeare. Shakespeare's uh, To Thine Own Self Be True. And right. Know Thyself is um, ancient Greece. It's, uh, oh, yes, uh, of course. Right, right, right. I'm thinking, because, oh, I know why I'm thinking that. Because then they say to thy own self be true, basically. Yeah. They conflate the two, yeah. basically, in the, in the Mickey Mouse scene, I think. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you, though. I was just going to make the throwaway observation that, yeah, reading about uh, Rabbit's pitch for the Magic Peel Peeler, I thought a little bit about um, uh, I Love Lucy and Vitamita Vegemans, but uh, mm-hmm. a little more so about uh, 
the uh, the old movie A Face in the Crowd, where um, this uh, kind of huckster and demagogue is doing his uh, TV show, which is sponsored by uh, Vitajex. Mm, mm-hmm. That's all. Mm-hmm. I've never seen that movie. Well, I want to talk. I want to come back to the question about Updike being overrated or underrated, or just that that comparison, because I think we should talk about that. But I really let's talk about Rabbit a little bit himself as a character, because you know Troy, you mentioned this idea of the kind of contradiction within him, and um, you know one of the things that really struck me when I read the book last year and again this year is that my own sort of. Um, the ways in which you you relate to you know as a reader you kind of relate to rabbit as a character you understand him you know he he has these relationships the the relationships with other characters are Katie and I were talking about this before just really really finely drawn and kind of amazing and there are all these moments where rabbit seems almost like a kind of spiritual everyman in his quest for something right but then there are also these moments especially as a woman i think when you're reading the book and you just loathe rabbit um because he you know, is making bad choices or he's being a jerk, you know, and he's he's describing the world kind of dismissively or especially the women around him. He sees very much this scrim of their, their like, physical um, imperfections that he's always describing, the little, like, the, the scaliness of his wife's skin now that she's turned 26, you know, <laughs> which is kind of a horrifying moment. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I just... I think I think Robert, I think that way that one moves in and out or for me the way that I kind of move in and out of you know, for these feelings about Rabbit is really kind of one of the things that's so masterful about the mm-hmm. book for me, you know, is that Updike really kind of doesn't let you settle into a perfect vision of him. I mean, so for example, like at the beginning, you know, he goes there's a wonderful set piece where he he's having drinks with his old coach and his old coach's new sort of squeeze who's a girl who lives in the in the neighboring city I think and she has a best friend who's a prostitute who's the one that he ends up shacking up with this woman Ruth and there's a moment when they're all talking oh actually this is later he's 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 done that and now he's hanging out with the two girls and a former teammate of his who mentions oh yeah you never fouled that was your thing and it's one of the things that defined rabbit as like a high school basketball player was that he never fouled but clearly he's in the midst of doing something or not clearly i shouldn't say that but like now he seems to be in the midst of making a of, you know engaging in a huge foul which is like running out on his pregnant wife right right, right, right. so um partly yeah well is is He's still clinging to this identity of having been a high school basketball star. He sort of right. twice set the county records for scoring. And we're meant to get the idea that a lot of his frustration, a lot of Angstrom's angst, is about having been beautiful at something, about having been mm-hmm. a natural, mm-hmm. and yet and being sort of unable to recapture the sense of freedom that he had on the basketball court. Mm-hmm. So is he a kind of saint or not? You know, I mean, there are all these moments where he's described sort of beatifically, and that's a reductive question, and it doesn't have to be either or, I guess, I would say, on the end. But, you know, there are these moments of these kind of, he's definitely trying to recover that, as you say, that kind of natural quality, that sense of being slightly I mean, I agree with you. I think that what makes him such a brilliant character is that he's so maddening and so charming. Yeah. And over and over again, Characters are seduced by him, whether it's his prostitute girlfriend, his wife, the reverend who kind of tries to take him in hand. Over and over again, people are seduced by his charm and by this sort of authenticity and what he's what he wants. And as you say, this kind of almost spiritual quest. And at the same time, he's kind of awful. And there's his wife who he's abandoned, you know, drinking old fashions while she's pregnant. And, you know, we'll talk about the kind of horrible denouement where he's really mistreating her Mm -hmm. um in a way but yet you never you don't despise him Mm -hmm. i think you know or maybe you go in and out of despising Mm -hmm. him Mm -hmm. and i think that that complexity is part of the the brilliance of updike's characterization which is that every interaction between characters is described and analyzed so perfectly and so precisely and kind of exquisitely that you just believe him and you end up going inside his universe to such an extent that you can both identify with him and be repelled by him at the same time, which is a very difficult feat for any authorial voice, I think. Yeah. And I think it does come partly from from uh, the way the other characters relate to him. That just reminded me that one of my favorite lines in the book is when the, the 
the reverend who's um, kind of been dispatched to bring uh, Rabbit back to his senses and to his family. At one point, they're having this conversation in which Rabbit is kind of revealing his mystical feelings about the world, and but also talking about girls. And Eccles says to him, it's the strange thing about you mystics, how often your little ecstasies wear a skirt. You yeah, know, and yeah, it's just yeah. like that kind of moment. But yeah, Troy, you were going to say something. Well, I was going to... Let me see if I can tie these ideas together. The one sort of uh, footnote I would make to, to Katie's suggestion that Updike... Uh, always describes human interactions perfectly is that writing about sex, he can be quite, quite, I think, flamboyantly bad uh, <laughs> and in an interesting way. Um, there are a couple matters there. The, partly, like when he's talking about his sort of flirtations with and occasional conquest of, for instance, the, the prostitute he was living with and also um, a kind of ambiguous flirtation with the wife of um, the Episcopal priest, the Episcopalian mm-hmm. priest, is kind of rounding up. He talks about his need to sort of dominate these women and to mm-hmm. sort of crush them. It's good writing, and it has a ring of truth to it, despite the fact that it kind of uh, cues you into the, the cruelty of this man who you had yeah. felt a great deal of sympathy for. But then there's also his his sex scene with the with the prostitute. Yes, which is it's just so bad. Oh, I'm glad and we it's, brought it's this up. This, I really want to talk like, about um, it. Yeah. yeah. I can try reading it, and you you could just cut me off when it gets unbearable. But it's it's, it's kind we of we should read a little of it. Yeah. It, it's it's you know uh, a sex scene in Philip Roth is going to be uh, sort of like blunt and have some comedy in it and some pathos. Mm-hmm. Um, the Updike's sex scenes, and this is true. Except you know what I think was a great sex scene in this book when he. His wife comes home from the hospital. She's had her baby. He oh, wants yeah. to have sex, sex with, her. with her. She's totally repelled by him. She's still thinking about how he's gone off with this other woman. He's pushing her, and he's, like, desperate. And they have this kind of, like, mishap, this sort of, like, where they miss each other sexually. Right, and right, it's right. so brilliantly done yes. and so amazingly captured and so somehow it's, yeah. true to life in yeah. a certain way. And I thought that... You know, is an example of this sort of perfect updike dance. So I don't know. I mean, read the. I'm curious. Read the Ruth scene, but I do think that's an example where he gets this sort of missed encounter kind of perfect. Right, right, right. But meanwhile, in this scene that I will attempt to read, uh, when he his, it goes his, on for his first quite encounter, a it's while. So seventy. You're not be able I've got to read this, the whole thing, this old uh, like Fawcett Columbine edition. It's oh, on page seventy three there. Yeah, read. You'll, you won't be able to get too far. And so he's he's with this woman, and uh, okay. Uh, Janice was shy of his eyes, so Ruth heats in his darkness. The lids flutter shut, though she arches anxiously against him. Her hand seeks him and angles him earnestly for a touch. His sealed lids feel as red. He sees blue when, with one deliberate hand, she pries open his jaw and bows his head to her burdened chest. Lovely wobbly bubbles, heavy, perfume between. Taste, salt and sour, swirls back with his own saliva. She rolls away onto her back, the precious red touching, touch breaking, twist, giving him cool new skin. Rough with herself, she forces the dry other breast into his face, coated with a pollen that dissolves. He opens his eyes, seeking her, and sees her face a soft mask gazing downward calmly, caring for him, and closes his eyes on the food of her again. His hand, abandoned on the breath of her body, finds at arm's length a split pod, an open fold, shapeless and simple. Um, yeah, we may not need to go for yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's, no, that's not even the worst of it. No, that's what, actually what's, not. That's, what, that's not the best either, but that's definitely Right, what's worst. interesting yeah. is that I, I don't think that there's anything ironic or mock heroic in this. It's this kind of this weird, yeah. unsuccessful aestheticization of, of Rabbit's kind of attempt to find some sort of transcendence. Well, in... transcendence, but also, I don't know that it's just transcendence. I mean, the, the line that I marked, because I really wanted to talk about this, was on the previous page, which to me, the epitome of the awfulness is just, it's the scene starts, when he knelt by the bed to grip her face, he pressed the sensitive core of his love against the edge of the mattress, and now, without his will, a little spills, like cream forced over the neck of the bottle by the milk's freezing. You know, yeah. it's aestheticization, but it's not just for, there is part of it, you're right, that is this, like, he's trying to have a kind of spiritual encounter with her body at certain moments. And that's definitely there, you know, and and there's a, there's a weird recurrent 
obsession in this book with the idea that like women are of the earth and they're like of the body and men are of air and grass and there's a kind of desire to differentiate between men and women and also a desire to kind of eradicate the difference between men and women right, and they're right, just right. sort of you know like the the wife of the episcopal priest sort of talks to him about sort of what men and what the church says men and women are and then there's another moment he's with ruth where she's in the pool and he has this kind of sensation of like happiness that people should be in different places that he wants mm-hmm. to watch her in her medium while he sits, you know, on the grass. But the sex scene, I mean, there were parts of it that I, that scene that I was like, seemed really interesting and like kind of direct and and a little bit brutal. And then hand in hand with that was this incredibly weird, as you said, aestheticization, which I can't think of any other writer who writes like this about, it's sort of how Updike writes about everything, actually. Yeah, I mean, he has, he has the sort of ratcheting up to this moment, this sort of rapturous, ecstatic moment often in all kinds of writing, if you think about the maple stories or anything. Mm -hmm. I think that he perfects, however, this technique, if you, if you look over the course of the rabbit books, and we do have to remember that this is the book of a 27 year old. Yeah, Um, that part's amazing. And I mean, when you think about Let's just think about like other books by twenty-seven-year-olds that we've discussed in this book club, mm-hmm. um, and the level of his writing. I think you know it's true that that's like part of the you know he's sort of becoming the better version of himself that he later becomes. And you know, to be fair, I also think sex scenes. You know, it's really hard to think of good sex scenes in literature. I mean, there's there's just not a lot of them. You know, I mean, when you actually are writing about the act, but. I think I think it's Henry true. Miller, go ahead. Well, but it would be interesting to go back and look at a Roth, a Philip Roth sex scene from this moment. Would that be like like this era? Because goodbye part Columbus. of it, right? It would be good by Columbus, which those sex scenes are really good, as I recall. I haven't read them, and I mean they're not as explicit at all. But one thing about this is it does seem really dated in a way. Like my version of the novel, which is from probably as I said the '60s, there's a lot of attendant material that kind of goes on about how graphic this novel is and how which I think now when you read it I mean it is but that's we it wouldn't be that surprising for this novel to be published today right Right. whereas I think at the moment it was published there probably was something very self-conscious about that like just even the fact that he uses curse words that he he starts with frigging and then he kind of builds up to fuck Uh, right you know there's a kind of conscious and I feel like the sex scene is part of that and I sometimes wonder except that that then when you read later Updike, you feel that that aestheticization, you think about the kind of famous, um, like, um, you know, uh, controversy over his um, piece about 9-11 in The New Yorker and how there were a lot of a lot of people who felt that he had aestheticized that moment, too. Like, this is sort of a recurring way that he deals with intensity of experience is to... Right. Describe and over describe. Yeah, old habits die hard, I, and I I, 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 I do agree that because this book was published in 1960, part of the problem is is perhaps feeling a need to resort to euphemism, and part of it yeah. is. Um, and he's writing from and about the 50s, which is such an alien era era to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the, I mean, when you look at Erica Jong or something, it looks dated too in all kinds of ways because writing about sex out of this period has a really particular quality yeah. to it yeah. in both the rebellion again you know in, in, in all of those things but I would also go back to something Troy said before about the brutality of his relationships with women because to me the brutality and the darkness in his relationships with women is actually part of the greatness of his book because I think there's an honesty in a lot of his in the way that he gets inside these relationships between men and women, and I think it's really uncomfortable, and I think it's upsetting often, and I think it's depressing in a lot of ways. But I don't, I don't really think it doesn't make you hate Rabbit. It isn't that different from like all kind, you know, the man you might like have dinner with. I mean, I just don't <laughs> think, I just don't think that these flashes of brutality are so outside of the realm of normal behavior. I think that it's actually. Um, and, I, and I'm not saying men versus women. I mean, I think it's true of women, too, that there's something that he gets at about the narcissism and the selfishness and the sort of way in which people interact that's actually true. Um, well, and not, and yeah. I mean, and, and the brutality, I think, is is part of the, you know, these kind of flashes. Like I brought up that scene where he 
wants to have sex with his wife and she's like still like in pain from childbirth and right, right. he runs out and it's so awful but on the other hand you can see his side and her side well by actually the way quite literally the scene. no and i mean quite literally you do it's actually the first time that we get to experience what janice is feeling or thinking and it's it's i think actually a really important moment in the book that that updike brings us around to her point of view and one of the, one of the things that i think is so amazing about the structure of this book is it starts and it seems like it's going to be close third person that you're going to be in that kind of I guess it's the free and direct discourse, you know, that you're going to be kind of understanding the world through Rabbit. But then you actually shift, like Updike actually shifts back and forth into Eccles at one point, into into Janice at that very moment. But, you know, the brutality thing, it's like, I agree, Katie, like you don't kind of hate him. But then on the other, moment, other hand, you do, like there were moments as a reader where I felt like I did hate Rabbit. And I did, you know, which, which is and it, they were the moments where he's being the most ungenerous and I think it was maybe the sentimental reader in me who is hating rabbit because there's certainly a way in which like what Updike is doing is de-romanticizing the really you know marriage um de-romanticizing intimacy and domesticity and all these things that were you know probably in the midst of being kind of wrapped up in this kind of you know, like the pictures that advertising would bring you. And again, mm-hmm. I keep thinking about kind of the role of that, the sort of shadow role of advertising mm-hmm. here. But so much of the novel is just these people who have gotten into something they have no, they had no idea what it was going to be before they got into it, which is to mm-hmm. say they had no idea what marriage was going to be. They mm-hmm. had no idea what being parents was going to be. And it's also, I think, a book about having a gift, having a kind of sense of grace and, and sort of searching for it, and that gift is basketball, right? And then, like, what do you do when when it's your job as a man to kind of be a provider and you live in this kind of industrialized part of Pennsylvania that it's you're sort of cut off. You have the sense of things going on, you know, down in the south, but you're sort of cut off from the world by that mountain that he keeps describing. That's like a big part of the book too, is this mountain and the shadow of the mountain. How it's always kind of dark in the town. I mean, yeah, and yeah. I mean, I think this book is a companion book to sort of the great sociology of the period, like yeah. the lonely crowd. Yeah. Um, and it's also a companion book to the, a book that isn't going to come out for a long time, which is Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique. In a lot of ways. Um, That's interesting. This book is talking about the discontents of the nuclear family as it was constructed in the 1950s from all the different points of view in a way that Betty Friedan would obviously not for quite some time articulate for the country. Um, And I do think that that those discontents are part of his subject. And I think we should talk about the calamity of the book, the central yeah, calamity. Yeah, we should talk about it too. Um, but I have a question, which is, do we feel that the book, <coughs> I mean, I feel definitely the book also transcends its historicity, so to speak, like, right? It's not just a book about the 50s, but it actually is a book about these. But Troy, you had something. Oh, uh, yeah, I think absolutely guys, it's you know, a book about uh, yeah. marriage the same way that Madame Bovary is. I thought that that was a, an interesting point that Katie made. I would say, though, that I think Appointment in Samara is a book that uh, wonderfully is more engaged with, with sort of sociology and is more sort of hands-on about talking about class structures and strictures. And that I think this book is kind of like sort of a companion to Catcher in the Rye in a way. Mm. Most conspicuously, there's there's sort of one bit early on when um, Rabbit's driving, he's driving, and there's that great sort of catalog of what he's hearing on the radio. And along with um, the news reports, or or along with the sort of the, the pop songs and the weather reports is a bit about uh, sort of the Dalai Lama having gone missing. It's a, where is the Dalai Lama? Sort of, in some sense, rabbit is the Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in both kind of like the uh, the nature of that sort of minor refrain and its, and its uh, interest in sort of Eastern religion and philosophy, it's it's uh, that's High Salinger right there. That's really interesting. I hadn't, I, I sort of, that was one of the things that was so striking reading the book again, as I was saying before, is all these little moments like that where there's so much is being conveyed in these tiny sentences. And you have to read the book incredibly carefully, actually, because I remember that, but I didn't even spend a lot of time thinking about it. The other book that I always think about as a companion to this is Walker Percy's The Movie Goer, um, which is also the story of a man who can't quite find... It, it's a different those they're very different books in in some really important ways but they're both the stories of men who are searching for something and kind of there are women who are around them who ultimately aren't very important in the search the the primary difference is in the movie go there is a woman who's really important whereas in this book there's actually no 
love object who matters all that much ultimately who who he has real feelings for Ruth but but sort of Updike in contrast I think to like Percy there there's not something absolute about those feelings right that he kind of moves in and out of being enamored of her and he is enamored of her but it doesn't it's not this it's not the answer to his yeah quest. Uh, yeah I, I also think then this is one of the reasons why the book is so good is that it's a little bit ambiguous what his his feelings towards Ruth are. I think that mm-hmm. whatever sort of genuine affection or love he might feel is uh, entirely mixed up with his kind of selfish desire for escape from mm-hmm. flight. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, totally. and he also like looking at the whole scope of the Rabbit books, he does build. I mean, his relationship with Janice changes enormously from mm-hmm. this point, and they both grow up, and by the end, they've built a sort of powerful and plausible connection between each other and and that in a way what happens within their marriage you know it's obviously not a perfect marriage and it's not a great marriage but it is actually a strong and enduring marriage and I think that his attachment to her you know you have to watch it and one of the great things about the rabbit series is you sort of watch the developments and you watch the reverberations of the things that happen in this book and how they come up later and affect things later and affect the child and and all of that and you know, I think, um, and this book is is the sort of commentary on this very early period of this couple who barely know each other, who get married in this 1950s style, um, where she it's gets hard, pregnant, right, right. and it's very distant from our own world. Right, there's a, um, a line early on that he, like, getting married at 23, he was getting married late. Late, yes. right, yeah, 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 which is one and of I mean, shocking moments. And also, moments. Like, they just don't really know each other in this book. And, yeah. I mean, I think we should talk about this that we scene. should go to the calamity. But I mean, one thing I have about that, I mean, and I have, as I said, I haven't read the other three, but but whenever I hear that about their marriage, and I know that they go on to have a marriage, you know, to be married. And I'm, I, but reading this book, I can't get any picture of that. Like, this book seems disconnected from that. Like, how he feels about her, you feel that there's just no way they're ever going to to do that and maybe maybe that isn't how marriage work and he he would move on to actually be able to build a marriage with her but there's something so irreducible about the differences between them here i think but let's let's talk about the calamity because that's part of it do you want to yeah there's a, that? there's um an incredibly disturbing scene and i i mentioned this to megan i've read this book maybe twice or even three times before you know quite some time ago and when i read this scene I had totally forgotten it or blocked it out or repressed it in some way, and I was really shocked by it reading it this time. And the scene is that Rabbit leaves. He's come back to Janet, Janice when she has her baby. Should should we say Uh, spoiler alert? Oh, yes, spoiler alert. In case you haven't read the book, this is a spoiler alert. This is sort of official Um, narrative. But he's, he's already left her, and then he comes back when she has her baby, a baby girl named Rebecca June, and he's he sort of becomes enchanted with her. He visits her in the hospital, and she's a little giddy from all the drugs they gave you back then. And they, he's sort of enchanted with her again. And with then Janice. With Janice. And with the baby. And with the baby. And then he, he runs off again because of this sex scene that we alluded to before where she won't have sex with him. And he's restless, and he, he walks out. And she starts drinking, and it's morning, I think, and she's drinking, like, the, what's she drinking? Some, she stays up all night, Yeah, she stays up all night, drinking. and she's drinking and drinking whiskey. and drinking whiskey. And um, and then there's a horrible... He's also, it, there's an irony, too, which is that he has made her a drink that's, like, half whiskey and half water in an attempt to kind of loosen her up for sex. Right. You know, and she's been actually trying not to drink because it had been one of his... His issues with issues, her. Issues with her, right, exactly. So there's a kind of poignancy there. Right, and right. then she's drinking and drinking, and she... Her mother is coming over because her mother senses there's something wrong. She hears the alcohol in her voice, and she decides to bathe the baby. Janice um, does. Janice right. decides before she's going to bathe comes, the baby yeah. before her mother comes. And in this scene where she's drunkenly trying to bathe the baby, she actually drowns this newborn baby, and the baby dies. And the scene is incredibly disturbing, obviously. And that's the moment in the book where, you know, the sort of consequence to everything. And Rabbit blames himself um, and she blames Rabbit, and she blames herself, and all the rest of the book. And he also blames her too, because at the funeral he he bursts out against her. Too. Right, right, right. And I mean, everyone's blaming everybody. It is her fault, you know, in the sense that. 
Well, technically, it is her fault that he's not quite doing his, his job as a help meet, is he? No. Right. Um, and you could right. say he's driven. I mean, it's actually a total feminine mystique moment, sort of pre I mean, it's like he is driving her into, the situation does drive her into a kind of madness, right? Right. It drives her into madness. And I also, this is, well, if we really get into this, we'll be here all night. But um, is, is, does she also have some postpartum depression? I ask by way of also wondering about what this book's attitude towards sort of psychiatry and psychology is. So if we hear from the first paragraphs on, we hear about rabbits being nervous or neurotic. And also, interestingly, the uh, the wife of the um, of the priest is not a believer, we get the idea, uh, but does have a lot of ideas about Freud. She's a Freudian yeah. rather than a <laughs> spiritualist. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is not to make a point, but just to notice something. It's a good question. There's one moment also. There is actually one very explicit psychological moment. I was talking about it with Katie before, where after Janice has done this terrible thing and this calamity has happened, what happens is Eccles, the the Episcopalian priest, calls him and he comes back and takes Nelson, the son, and you know, and or no, that's earlier. I guess he's taken Nelson, but he comes back and he comes to the funeral and they all go together and he goes to see Janice's parents, who say to him. Um, I should find it. But basically, they say something to him about, you know, we don't blame you. And, you know, although we do kind of blame you, we don't blame you because we think we, we never gave her enough love. Like, clearly, we never gave her enough love. Or, And it's one of the few moments where you hear that kind of entrance of a psychological, you know, reading. And it's very explicit there. Right. Um, that doesn't answer your question about what the book's attitude or all that is. But I'm it's sort of an emerging. It because it's, it's yeah. a, a little town like this would have been maybe just then catching on to the, this kind of 1950s sort yeah. of uh, popularization of, mm-hmm. of Freudian psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and it's funny because so much else in the book, the, the, the character issues, certainly the character issues that Rabbit is having are couched as spiritual ones. And there's a passage that I wanted to mention, which is right after um, Janice, Janice kills the baby. Well, actually, there's an interesting moment in when... He, one thing I wanted to talk about was when she does kill the baby, there's this idea. She, before the baby dies, she has this idea that someone is in the house with her. Mm-hmm. There's a presence in the house with her. And she doesn't know what it is. And she's sort of trying to avoid it. And then when the baby dies, I'll just read the, the passage. She thinks she's taken the baby out and that it's okay. She says, then she, has baby Be- then she has Becky squeezed in her hands and it is all right. She lifts the living thing into air and hugs it against her sopping chest. Water pours off them onto the bathroom tiles. The little weightless body flops against her neck, and a quick look of relief at the baby's face gives a fantastic, clotted impression. A contorted memory of how they give artificial respiration pumps Janice's cold, wet arms and frantic, rhythmic hugs. Under her clenched lids, great scarlet prayers arise, wordless, monotonous, and she seems to be clasping the knees of a vast third person whose name, Father, Father, beats against her head like physical blows. I mean, you can see why you forgot what the scene was, because it's... It's actually, I think it's really masterful the way he does it, and it's incredibly indirect, too. Mm-hmm. Like, the, w- one of the things you notice about Updike's prose, or I notice about Updike's prose, is he always does this thing where a character is feeling something or think- thinking something, and then they slide into a reverie, or they slide into an awareness that their perception isn't right or needs correcting, but it's never stated directly. So that happens here. You know, it's first it's the living thing, and then it's a weightless body. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, she's having a memory. There's a kind of clotted impression, and then a me- I mean, it's verging on the overwritten, right? I mean, it verges on that kind of aestheticization that we've talked about. But I think it actually works very well, as it kind of gives you that sense of abstract confusion that I think Janice is having. Well, and that she doesn't yeah. get what's happening, yeah. and that it's all shapes and colors. Yeah. And like- but then there's that weird father, father. I mean, is that the Lord, or is that, you know, what is that moment? You know, I found that this part odd in in the. In the book, yeah, um, that vast person. I mean, it seems like I it mean, has I think to be. It is the Scarlet Prayers. I right. think that she is like praying for something to undo right. this moment. Right. And then there's and this it, question they have of whether this is a punishment. Sorry, but which maybe we should talk about too. Like, are we sort of is this actually a punishment for them? You know, and it's sort of the psychological model is held up against the the spiritual model in some senses. Right, and and the kind of spiritual model that does sort of more than once sort of engage with, with God and the devil as mm-hmm. nearly physical presence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. 
There's a serious meditation on the devil, which actually was one of my favorite parts, where I think it's Eccles or someone is saying, you know, the devil does appear before us. And I think we're meant to entertain that as a possibility. But elsewhere, you know, so many of of, of um, Rabbit's moments are, you know, he, so I was going to say before, you know, he's about to come back to, he's realizing he should come back and be with Janice, but he can't quite bring himself to. And he's talking about that, you know, there's this, there's this wonderful passage where Updike is kind of building the prose and saying what keeps him from coming is, what keeps him from coming is, and it turns out to be this sense that there's an opening, that he can find an opening that would be antithetical to the the claustrophobia of the domestic relationship. So, I mean, on the one hand, there's that kind of, you know, familiar 1950s longing for the road, you know, the male, you know, kind of freedom and travel, you know, kind of search for traveling. But that opening also feels spiritual to me. I think in a way you're right about the punishment, but also I think it's a tragedy that's outside of them in a certain sense. And they're both childlike here. Mm -hmm. They're both so much children with him, you know, thinking about his high school basketball. With her, you know, in this one scene leading up to this moment, there's all these things where she's thinking, well, I shouldn't change her diaper because I don't want to prick her. And she's so proud of herself because she Mm -hmm. said that. And there's a sense that the baby is sort of alien and she doesn't know how to take care of it. And Mm -hmm. then she says she's so proud that she's going to clean it before her mother comes Mm -hmm. because she's barely mastering these basic domestic things. And we, we get the sense all along through the book that she can barely keep the house. She can't cook anything. Yeah. She's a terrible housekeeper. She's watching TV all day. She's sitting in her bathrobe drinking. She's a t- she doesn't know how to be this domestic idea of the 1950s. And in mm. a way, this failure mm. of doing it, what happens is this really simple thing of giving the baby the bath, all of a sudden the stakes are raised. So here are these two childlike people running around, you know, trying to sort of figure out how to be normal adults. And all of a sudden, with this life, the stakes are life and death, you know, and suddenly a baby is killed. And the sort of minor comic tragedy of the rest of the book shifts, and all of a sudden it's a deeper tragedy, and all of a sudden the stakes are high. And I think that that's more the point than the punishment, is that what's at stake here suddenly gets ratcheted up at the Mm -hmm. end of the book, and that's part of the sort of complicated beauty of this book I think that in a way everybody's sort of selfishly running around like what do I want how can I be fulfilled rabbit running off all of it takes on a different meaning after this happens yeah and then of course he runs away again he basically runs away three times mm-hmm. you know and again this book is sort of has to be read in slight as a slight you know kind of romanticization of running his hands lift of their own, and he feels the wind on his ears even before his heels hitting heavily on the pavement at first, but with an effortless gathering. Out of a kind of sweet panic, growing lighter and quicker and quieter, he runs. Ah, runs, runs. And how do you read that? I mean, earlier, I think you're right about the ratcheting up of stakes, Katie, and earlier he has a conversation with somebody who basically, who is it? Is it one of his fathers, or is it Eccles, who says to him, you know, oh, it's Tethero, it's his old coach. He comes to the funeral and says, or is it? Now I'm forgetting. Someone says to him, what you have left to you is to be a good husband and to take care of what, what you ha- what you still have, what you have left. And, he's, and Rabbit is disbelieving and says, really, is that what, you know, oh, yes, here it is. It's, uh, it's Eccles. And Rabbit says to him, what do you think? And Eccles says, about what? And Rabbit says, what shall I do? And Eccles says, do what you are doing. Be a good husband, a good father. Love what you have left. And Rabbit says, and that's enough? Eccles says, you mean to earn forgiveness? I'm sure it is carried out through a lifetime. And then he says, you know, is that the thing behind everything? Just to So you're right. I mean, there's a ratcheting up of the stakes. And the question is, like, the two things are being placed in opposition. Like, do you just do your duty and love what you have left, even if you've messed up? Or do you keep looking for the thing that's behind everything? And and what happens is Rabbit runs. And in that moment where he's running, in that final moment, it says, goodness lies inside, there is nothing outside. Those things he was trying to balance have no weight. He feels his inside is very real suddenly, a pure, pure blank space in the middle of a dense net. Yeah. And so, again, that opposition of, like, what's inside. Yeah. And it's um, an amazing ending because it's not an ending. 
you know, it's an ending that carries forward, but we don't know what it carries forward into, you know, and the ending yeah. is itself. It's like the end is itself just the pleasure of running, right? Just like the pleasure of running and the pleasure of reading that remarkable passage about running. Right, right, right. And the well, story yeah. of this marriage over the course of the rabbit books is going to be this repeated running. This running and this coming back and this running and this coming back. And one can make the argument about many marriages or possibly about marriage in general that that's what the narrative is, is running and coming back and being there and embracing it and being happy in it. And and he does have these warm moments and bursts of love for Janice that end for his family that go all the way through. Um, and then the panic and the running and the cheating and the looking at someone else and all of that. And, you know, it's a sort of, um, I think that, that, you know, it is deliberately unresolved in that way, that this is going to, the act of running is, is going to be central to the rabbit books, all of them. Mm-hmm. Right. You're saying that reminds me, it, it kind of stands in, in, in contrast, as a bit early on, where uh, Rabbit's remembering his, uh, his sort of early courtship with Janice, and there's a, there's a bit, and it's, it, um, well, let's see if I'm going to be able to find it. At any rate, it, it kind of takes off from the last sentence of uh, The Great Gatsby about Rabbit and Janice walking hand in hand, kind of like against the current of traffic. Huh. Oh, um, that's wonderful! And I didn't the, the, that. sort of the, uh-huh. the his sort of solitary running, uh, uh-huh. sort of the, the capital R romantic solitary running, contrasted with the sort of pretty realism of yeah. walking together. That's great. We should probably draw this to a close, but two questions, I guess, for both of you. One is. Do you think, I, we can go back to that question of do you think Updike is underrated relatively? Is that something we should talk about? And two, for readers who might, or listeners rather, who um, might want to read some Updike right now, is this a book that you would recommend them starting with? Or is there another Updike book you would recommend to or separately? I, w- I, was, I was thinking about that, to take the second part first. Yeah. I would maybe say go buy the early stories. Yeah, the that, stories that, Which is a handsome volume, and uh, which you can sort of, sort of, Flip around, fl- flip around in. There's because this this book, charming as it is, is it's a little heavy at bits, and and uh, I don't mean sort of philosophically heavy, but the its sex scene is ponderous, and also it's a little bit long in the middle. The, mm-hmm. There's a space, uh, the, this part that's never really worked for me, where he, while he's living with uh, with the prostitute Ruth, he um, is is kind of working in the garden of this old of this widow mm-hmm. and it, it it doesn't do much for me at any rate so the, the stories are, 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 are yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the stories are just like quicksilver and yeah i i think the other rabbit books are actually better mm-hmm. i think the rabbit trilogy is the best thing he did mm-hmm. i mean the four mm-hmm. um i think rabbit is rich is probably the best of them but I, I do think it's worth going through all the rabbit books. Mm-hmm. I actually do. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously the maple stories are great. The pigeon feathers is great. And I think, you know, his other novels, of his other novels, I think Couples and Marry Me mm-hmm. are kind of easier and more fun and more accessible, but also, you know, extremely interesting. And I do, I, I do to the, the, the question of, of whether he's underrated, and we didn't get to this today, but I just think sentence by sentence... Um, there's so many beautiful sentences, and obviously people have criticized him for these beautiful sentences, but I just think when you look at um, all of his writing and how amazingly he expresses things, it really comes down to that. I do think that there's something incredible in these books, in, how, in just these moments that we've sort of hinted at some of them, these little moments. Cool. It doesn't seem quite right to say that he's he's underrated because all these sort of effusive obituaries that were written about him, many sort of made the claim, and a claim that can be persuasively argued that he's sort of the great American writer of the second half of the 20th century. I do have this sense, and Katie, you'd know this better than I, that he's maybe kind of undervalued in in the Academy. Uh, and I'm going to qualify all of this by saying that uh, like, I've read maybe like half his books like one out of three of his novels is quite bad, actually. Mm-hmm. Like I think, like the of the things he's written in the last decade, sort of seek my face is this kind of art world novel about one guy who's, in the course of his career, his style evolves like from abstract expressionism to pop to op and onwards. His, his Gertrude and Claudius, his book about his book about that. Hamlet is I didn't like kind that of book. embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't even 
I haven't even tried to read Terrorist. I read Terrorist. How was Terrorist? You know, there are interesting moments in it, but I, I couldn't. I don't know. It felt very forced in a way that, but you know, he is. I mean, that's always. This is always a perennial problem with writers who write a lot. You know, do you throw out? Because inevitably, there's a lot of bad work, along with the good work or lesser work. We should say, yeah. Do we throw that out and then value the good work, or does it somehow end up getting counted? And with him, it does feel like you throw out the work that's not. Yeah, it'll fall into obscurity. Other books that somehow didn't get. I mean, I think in the Beauty of the Lilies is a great book Mm -hmm. that didn't. That Mm -hmm. was somehow. Not one of his books mm-hmm. that people think Talk of, about. but you know. And again, when I think of like the bad books, I don't think they're bad compared to a lot of what other people are writing that we think of as good books. Well, no, you know, I, I think Philip Roth writes not bad yeah, books too, right? right? Right. I mean, I think that we're talking about comparatively, and I do think he is judged by that. You know, mm-hmm. by his like prolificness and his mm-hmm. functionality, and the fact that he wasn't, you know, he's sort of just this regular guy. I also um, think Roth was picked up by certain critics and has been heralded repeatedly by there are certain critics who have really gotten behind Roth. And that hasn't quite happened with Updike in the same way, although everyone says speaks out of how wonderful a writer he is. There's not, I don't know, that same sense of him being kind of, you know, picked up and lifted above the crowd um, by, contemp- by kind of contemporary critics. And maybe that is because the late work overshadows or has gotten into the way of, of kind of reminiscing fondly about the old work. But He's also, I mean, I think it's worth saying he's an excellent critic and an amazing mm. essayist. Mm-hmm. And his essays, you know, if you're talking the shore, his essays are really incredible. And, you know, he's sort of, he's extremely, he, his output is amazing, you know, just how much he's managed to produce, um, famously working only in the mornings. But, you know, he he's incredibly talented in a lot of different directions and you know and I do think that it is true that I think some of the feminist stuff and some of his treatment of women has alienated a lot of people who might otherwise defend him and I'm not sure why that doesn't apply to Roth have you ever read his poems Megan yes I would prefer to remember yeah, him as a that critic sounds and like novelist. A <laughs> I was going to say something, and then I thought I will bite my tongue for the man is newly in his uh, in the other world. But you know they're very clever. But I prefer his novels and his essays. Well, do we need to end on a, <laughs> on a fonder note than that? Perhaps we do. Um, yeah. Well, I I really I do think this book is amazing. I I think I would I think I would second your recommendation, Troy, of the early stories. And I haven't read some of those novels that you mentioned, Katie. But the stories are just so incredible. And I think one really important thing to say is, you know, we've talked about these beautiful sentences, and I think sometimes these overwritten sentences get held up as like this idea of the beautiful sentence in Updike. But actually, there are many, many sentences in this book and in the stories that are really beautiful without being showy. You know, And that's something that doesn't, yeah. I think, get said enough about Updike, that actually like a lot of this book is incredibly beautiful without being ornate. Absolutely. You know? And, and I, I'm, I, I don't think that he overwrites that often, except when talking about sex and sometimes plants. Um, <laughs> In general, he he masters the trick of being delicate without being too pretty. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Well, on that note, we'll bring this to a close. Thank you so much, Troy and Katie, for joining me today. And um, a thank you to our listeners for joining us as well. We will be back soon reading Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. And for Slate.com, I'm Megan O'Rourke.